Good afternoon. It's Friday the 4th of June 2021, just after one o'clock. Welcome to UK Column News. I'm your host, Mike Robinson. Joining me in the studio today, as usual on a Friday, Patrick Henningsen from 21st Century Wire. Welcome to the programme, Patrick. Great to be with you, Mike. Uh, and we're delighted to say we'll be joined shortly by uh, Dolores Cahill. So uh, we're going to get straight on because we've got a lot to cover as usual. And well, what is the message, Patrick? As we said, uh, more variants coming. I'm not sure which one that is sneaking in the background there. But uh, of course, the Indian variant has re been renamed the Delta variant. We've now got the, uh, the Nepalese variant. Uh, we're waiting for the North Korean variant. The, the Vietnamese variant has made landfall in the United States, uh, we're told as well. So, And the most prevalent variant in the US, some say, is the UK variant. So it's a lot of Interesting uh, cross-pollination, Mike. And uh, so what is happening as a result? Well, of course, as predicted by many, uh, including us, <laughs> of course, uh, the summer is effectively being cancelled. So uh, people who had headed off to Portugal on the basis that Portugal was a green country, uh, as predicted, are now struggling to get back before Tuesday when Portugal is no longer a green country. What but, happened? Has it gone amber? Well, yes, but let uh, Robert Jenrick explain because, of course, Robert Jenrick uh, is well qualified to explain these kind of things. So let's just have a brief listen. To I appreciate it's very disappointing and frustrating for people who are in Portugal and for those people who work in the industry. But we have made so much progress as a country as a result of our vaccine rollout that we do need to adopt a cautious approach to protect the UK from infection, from new variants. With respect to Portugal, there are really two important considerations. Firstly, we saw a very significant rise in positivity in recent weeks. In fact, it's doubled in Portugal in three weeks since the last review point to take it to a much higher level than we see here in the UK. And then secondly, perhaps most importantly, although both countries have prevalence of what's known as the Indian variant, Delta variant, we've also seen a further mutation emerge, uh, become a, uh, prevalent within Portugal, now known as the Nepal variant. And we thought it was important to be cautious whilst we're still learning more about this new variant. We don't know yet whether it's going to be a problem but our scientists are doing research as we speak. They're looking at whether it is more transmissible, whether it's more virulent, and above all, whether or not our current set of vaccines are effective against it. Whilst we do that research, I think most people, I hope most people, will appreciate that it's right to be careful. Where do we start with that? Do you appreciate that, Mike? Do you appreciate that it's right to be careful? I, I appreciate that uh, the narrative is changing every five seconds. Variants after variants are going to justify uh, us not coming out of lockdown on the 21st of June. It's going to justify no foreign travel again this year. Um, and of course, they can just produce more variants out of a hat uh, every five minutes. He said he was uh, alarmed by the rise in positivity in Portugal. Maybe he was just mistaken. It was just everyone excited to get to the beach, Mike. Uh, and I'm not sure if it was what he was talking about. Yes. But look, let's have a look at this, uh, because this is a contract which has uh, gone up in Public Contracts Scotland. Um, it's uh, entitled Contract for Sample Tracking System for NHS Scotland Whole Genome Sequencing Service. So let's just have a look at some of the detail of it. Uh, the NHS in Scotland is setting up a national sequencing services uh, to carry out whole genome sequencing as part of development of this service. The need for a sample tracking system has been identified to ensure a managed quality assured automated services delivered with high sequencing capacity. 
the contract notice is for a sample tracking system to facilitate uh, sample management and tracking within the whole genome sequencing process only. Um, so that uh, uh, perhaps seems uh, just like it's uh, a database alone, but in fact, it's uh, a bit more than that because they're also uh, providing uh, some physical hardware to go along with it. Uh, this type of thing, which is for moving liquids from you know from within vials and so on, and, and automatically tracking what's in where uh, and keeping records of that. So, what is this about? Well, the question is, why are they looking at whole genome? Sequencing, the company that's sort of in lead on this is uh, this one, Illumina, uh, and they have been around uh, for a little while and they seem to be, as I say, leading the pack on this. Uh, let's have a look there. So they're powering the heroes in the front lines with sequencing solutions to address a pandemic. So this is good stuff. Let's have a look. Uh, I ha I, sorry, a high resolution view of the entire genome. Let's uh, look at some detail on this. Advantages of whole genome sequencing. It captures both large and small variants that might be missed with targeted approaches. So what seems to be going on here, Patrick, is that the uh, Scottish government now looking for a solution to make sure that they can keep finding uh, new variants all the time. Um, and uh, what's interesting about this particular contract is that part of it involves um, taking and uh, moving around PCR samples. Um, so. Uh, as you know, with PCR, you can effectively find whatever you like. Sure. So this, this is designed as another tool uh, to sort of keep the pandemic uh, going. Uh, the, the whole process that they're talking about, a lot of countries, including in India, uh, again, relying on PCR testing and then taking uh, the, the priming the PCR machine with certain markers, then taking their findings and their data and pouring it into computer models and filling in the blanks with uh, genomic sequences that are available on gene banks. And a lot of this is the reason why we're at where we're at today. So what they're doing is giving us more of the same. We'll probably want to uh, ask Dolores Cahill about that particular issue when we do get her on. Uh, yes, well, I mean, maybe we could hijack Dolores right now because we didn't warn you we were gonna ask this question, but I'm very interested, Dolores, if you don't mind in, in your thoughts on uh, on this whole uh, variant, I mean, the, the British government even has gone as far as to brand it uh, variants of concern and variants under investigation, two separate brands, depending on which variant they're talking about. This is the gift that keeps on giving because, of course, as Robert Jenrick has just said there, uh, we will never know whether the next variant that comes along could get past the defences of the vaccine. And so uh, they've got to be cautious and make sure that we remain uh, locked down and maintain the normal uh, COVID pandemic management processes that we have? Um, lovely to be on with you both, by the way, and I, I'm a great fan of the UK column. And just to briefly say, my degree is in molecular biology and I worked for eight years in the Max Planck Institute and we were some of the leaders in the world uh, in sequencing the Human Genome Project. And I would have done, you know, at one time up to a quarter of a million PCR tests when we were doing amplification of libraries. Uh, so this is an area I know. So just to say, uh, coronaviruses, everybody has an immune system. There's absolutely no need to call this a pandemic. And as regards the variants, when a virus goes into a person, you know, they will automatically, the virus will mutate multiple times. But our immune system, it's like if it was a rugby ball. Really, if you have, you know, if there are 29,000 letters in the code and you change 10, 20, 30, 
what they are calling variants is just one or two changes in the 29,000. But the immune system in our body sees the whole thing in a three-dimensional way. And so these variants do not cause any disease, just to keep it simple. There is absolutely no need for the lockdown, and there are prevention and treatments available for influenza-like illness. And I would be very happy that they are sequencing, because I would be guessing that what is been in these positive PCR tests would not be SARS-CoV-2 at all. And so we could then do freedom of information to look and see what has actually been sequenced. So just to keep it simple, these variants entirely uh, nothing to worry about, no need to call this a pandemic. There never really was one, um, and there is absolutely no need, and we'll come on to it later, but individuals locking down the country and causing harm is entirely unnecessary, and each of those need to be held accountable for uh, unnecessarily you know, having a lockdown and calling these variants as a rationale for it. And these sequencing companies, it's actually a procurement issue and around misrepresentation of the need and then you could look at it from a financial perspective as well. The testing, the variant testing is entirely unnecessary and potentially financial and misrepresentation issues under the law. Um, well, you've made some excellent points there. And uh, something that we should remind people is that although these are private companies uh, that are doing this work, they're doing this work on behalf of public bodies. And so they, the work that they do, aside from many commercial uh, issues, does fall under freedom of freedom of information. So Dolores is absolutely right in saying that uh, we could find this information out uh, as this contract goes forward. So let's move on then and the issue of adverse reactions. And first of all, the very sad story of uh, the uh, uh, lady, 43-year-old uh, in Plymouth, uh, Tanya, uh, who um, has passed away as a result of blood clots following the AstraZeneca jab. Now, she um, passed away earlier in the year, in uh, late March, early April. And uh, the family, of course, went through a, a grieving process, which are still going through. Uh, but it was only after the BBC um, uh, journalist uh, had passed away that they decided to speak out about it. So a couple of uh, really amazing things about this article. First of all, uh, she was a very uh, amazing person. She was a, a, a childminder. Um, she had a large family of her own, but one of her children required some additional support. And so she uh, then offered child manding to um, her friends, family and or, or her friends, and, and then eventually to the city council. Um, and she was child manding for 19 years. Um, she was uh, contacted by her GP. She booked a vaccination appointment. She took the vaccination uh, from the uh, Home Park Vaccination Centre in March. Uh, and then she, according to her, her partner, felt pretty rough after that. And then a couple of days later, ended up in the hospital uh, where they uh, diagnosed multiple blood clots. Uh, she then subsequently had a heart attack and cardiac arrest. Uh, and after a short period, then uh, passed away. Now, her partner believes that uh, she would not have passed away if she hadn't had the AstraZeneca vaccine. Um, but of course, then we start to get the change. The first half of this article is very positive towards her and what's happened to her, very sympathetic. But then we get the change in the article uh, because they go on to say, but this cannot be confirmed until a full investigation and inquest into her death has taken place. Of course, they haven't asked the question about whether such uh, an investigation is in progress. Uh, but then it goes on to say that the European Medicines Agency says that the benefits of the vaccine and combating the widespread threat of COVID-19, which itself results in clotting problems and may be fatal, 
continue to outweigh the risks of side effects. And then they go on to ask a number of questions like, what does the NHS slash MHRA say? And what does the government say? And there's no challenge uh, to any of the narratives from the uh, MHRA or the government uh, at all in this article. So uh, it does a U-turn very quickly and at, at very much attempts to underpin uh, and minimize the effect of uh, this lady's death. And, uh, and, and constantly what we're seeing is the media or uh, downplaying all of these various incidents, not just in the UK, Europe, but also in the United States as well. And I might uh, ask Dolores a question on this. Uh, Dolores, what do you think about all of these reports? I mean, these are not uh, various and sundry reports anymore. The volume of reports, uh, even in the mainstream, uh, in terms of severe reactions and even fatalities uh, following these various uh, vaccine products, um, is, this, uh, is this something that people should really be concerned about right now? Uh, it, it just seems like they're increasing the reports. Yes, and I suppose when I came out in May 2020, I, in my first interviews, um, I included a paper from 2012, which was titled around immunopathology issues with generating mRNA candidate so-called vaccines or gene therapy for coronavirus. Um, and some of this was back in 2012, and they were reporting uh, results from over 20, 30 years and zero mRNA gene therapy or vaccinations were approved. And the issue around blood clots and immunopathology was well known. And as we know, in some of the studies, half or all of the animals died. And the paper was entitled Immunopathology Issues in Animals and in Human Subjects. So this has been well known um, for you know, decades and zero mRNA gene therapies for coronavirus were ever licensed because of the clotting issue. Um, so this is well known. And we just had a, a call where I'm staying, uh, where a, a someone in the locality, a 49-year-old, died of blood clotting within 24 hours of getting the injection um, and died in, in, you know, with multiple bleedings and multiple blood clots and was not able to be saved. So there were huge reports. And I think where it comes to accountability, again, is these should not be put down as COVID-19. These are clearly adverse events. And in previous clinical trials with vaccines, if 25 people died in the world, the vaccine, these are all clinical trials. Um, and we know just in the EU alone, 12,000 people have died and 1.2 million people have been reported into the EU database as having injuries. So if we have 400,000 people in Europe, you're talking about one in 400 people having injuries in the EU. So the harm of these are clearly um, you know, they're not, they're doing more harm than good. And so in the regulators in the UK, they need to be held personally accountable, as we'll talk about later for this. Uh, yes, couldn't agree more. Okay. Uh, that, now, what's uh, Joe Biden been up to then? Well, uh, speaking of the AstraZeneca vaccine, Joe's got a different name for it. He's rebranded it. Uh, but uh, so the US is wanting to dump its supply of AstraZeneca doses on the rest of the world to save the planet uh, from the dreaded scourge of COVID-19. We've got a clip here from Joe and just apologizing in advance. He's struggling a little bit through parts of this. Just, just bear with him. He'll make it to the end. And today, we're taking an additional step to help the world. We know America will never be fully safe until the pandemic that's raging globally is under control. 
No oceans wide enough, no walls high enough to keep us safe. Rampant disease and death in other countries can destabilize them, those countries, and pose a risk to us as well. New variants could arise overseas that could put us at greater risk. And we need to help fight the disease around the world to keep us safe here at home and to do the right thing of helping other people. It's the right thing to do. It's the smart thing to do. It's the strong thing to do. In March, we shared over 4 million doses of our AstraZeneca vaccine with Canada and Mexico. At the end of April, we announced that we would provide another 60 million doses of our AstraZeneca va vaccine overseas. Remember, this is the vaccine that's not authorized for use in the United States yet, so we're going to be sending it to folks once the FDA has reviewed this and said it's safe. This is all the AstraZeneca vaccine produced in the United States, all of it, will be sent to other countries. And today, I'm announcing they will also share U.S. authorized vaccine doses of Pfizer and Moderna and Johnson & Johnson as they become available with the rest of the world as well. These are vaccinations and vaccines that are authorized to be put in arms of Americans. Well, he's a bit, he was a bit inconsistent there. First of all, he said AstraZeneca hasn't been authorized to be, and he had he backtracked from that as quickly as he could. Uh, but uh, he seems a bit confused, uh, Patrick. I don't see how he could be because he's reading off the biggest teleprompter known to man. But did you see what he said? Is ain't no mountain high enough, ain't no wall tall enough to keep us safe. Mm. In other words, if there's COVID anywhere, according to uh, public health experts, if there's COVID anywhere in the world, we're not safe in America. Therefore, we need to flood the planet with our AstraZeneca or AstroVeneca, as he said, vaccines. And so that's going to save the planet. So this is just going to be endless mm. vaccines for endless variants. You can see this is kind of the Australian playbook uh, as well that they're really pushing. It's just, just endless vaccines. The Devi Srihar uh, narrative as well. Mm. Variants, variants, vaccines, vaccines. And Bill Gates is saying we can ramp up production in a matter of weeks for any variant. And we have the capacity to do this. This is just Pardon me, it's madness. Um, well, if you want to uh, see the latest uh, MHRA data for the UK and for adverse reactions, then head over to UK column, sorry, to yellowcard.ukcolumn.org. Uh, and the uh, data has been updated now, uh, today, with the latest information. And, uh, you know, I'm just going to mention the, the graphs on the second page here, because uh, if you look at the uh, number of fatalities uh, allegedly caused by the vaccine, plus uh, the total number of reactions. Uh, the one thing that still continues to stand out for me there, Patrick, is uh, that uh, the red bars are the AstraZeneca and the uh, green bars are the uh, Pfizer. Uh, there are significantly more adverse reactions from AstraZeneca uh, listed, uh, but there seem to be, as a proportion, a much higher uh, degree of death coming from the Pfizer, uh, you know, as a proportion of the number of total, total reactions for each of the vaccines. So that, I think that's a, a pretty interesting, uh, a pretty interesting little graph there, and uh, we should be asking why that is. Yeah, and if you if you look at Children's Health Defense uh, and the articles that they put out recently about the VAERS database in the United States, showing that hugely underreported in terms of adverse reactions and fatalities, um, so a massive proportion. So what you're seeing on these databases, be it Yellow Card, be it the VAERS database, uh, has a lot to do with whether doctors or GPs or whoever's the attending physician is going to 
record that. And a lot of times the motivation is just not there. Uh, and I, we know we've spoken to people uh, for, who watch this program who've told us that, is they went to their doctor after they had an outbreak of shingles, after taking, for instance, the AstraZeneca vaccine, the doctor said, no, they're not related. It's not related, must be something else. And he said, but doctor, it came right after. And also my, my legs are swollen as well. It's not related, don't worry. So that's not going to go on the yellow card database. No, and also we've been told by people working within the NHS that they are being discouraged from uh, making reports to the yellow card database as well. So we would like to understand a little bit better uh, what kind of proportion of uh, reports are actually being made. Um, because we know from the past, of course, it's been significantly low in the one to 10% range. Um, so, uh, uh, well, we'll keep an eye on that and we will attempt to bring more information as we possibly can. Now, uh, let's uh, bring Dolores back on, pro on the program to discuss the main point here. Um, this is uh, what we've got on screen at the moment are two notices of liability uh, for harm and death, one uh, for, the, for Northern Ireland and one for the Republic of Ireland. Uh, and Dolores, uh, just uh, tell us what these uh, are about and then we'll, we'll go into a little bit of the detail of it. Yeah, so I suppose, you know, really what we have to do is to say we've had enough now. Um, and this whole thing with the uh, SARS-CoV-2 issue need never be. It would be like if we had a disease of pneumonia and doctors and regulators and politicians did not make treatment like antibiotics available. So what we're trying to do um, is to say that individual people who will say are saying like politicians or doctors who are coercing or requiring um, or, you know, countries to say, if you need to travel, you must have these mRNA injections, that all of the mRNA injections are clinical trials. And so anyone who does the injection is actually, if they cause harm, are accountable in their private and personal capacity. So these notices of liabilities are basically informing, like in Ireland, um, there are 13 key roles that if any one or all of these 13 men and women actually came out and said these mRNA injections are actually causing huge adverse events and death, that they could stop the injections. And so therefore, every day that the lockdown and these um, disinformation and untruthful uh, analysis of the situation actually rests on the shoulders, we'll say in ERA, in uh, Ireland, on these individual people, and we are then putting them on notice that under the law, um, there is a maxim that if you fail to prevent something, you are as guilty as someone that's actually involved in carrying it out. And the second thing is they are oath takers and there is the Hippocratic oath, whether they take it or not, they have an ethical and moral obligation to make prevention and treatments available, which they are, as we know, vitamin D, ivermectin, hydroxychloroquine and zinc. And so that all of the death and the adverse events in Ireland and in each of our countries rests at these people. So whether they're the chief medical officer, the um, minister for health uh, or the regulatory authority that are not properly, uh, each of these clinical trials should be stopped by the individual people. So this is a notice of liability process. We're putting them on notice. Uh, and then there are, you can say, you know, we're giving them the opportunity to provide the evidence that uh, we say SARS-CoV-2 exists, that they are making prevention treatment available, that the mRNA injections are safe. And if they don't provide it, you can then go through a notice of default. But then anyone who's injured, I think in this thing, the most disappointed people will be 
the people that take these injections and then realize that their doctor did not give them full informed consent under the law. And then individuals can actually take a case against the doctor and the doctor's indemnity insurance, or we can actually take cases against, we'll say, the chief regulator uh, or the chief medical officer or the minister for health or the prime minister, that they are liable and there is no statute of limitations in their private and personal capacity for the harm, injury and death and loss that they are causing under the rule of law. Uh, and this is this is really important because uh, oftentimes we have uh, many, many people hiding behind their office uh, and therefore they have no po possible, there's no personal liability there. It's time for that situation to end and for uh, people to be re held responsible as individuals for the actions that they took while they were in office. Yep, that's exactly right. And I suppose what we've been saying for a year is that individuals, exactly right, are responsible in their private capacity and for the rest of their lives, even if they resign. Um, and it also means, for example, you know, not giving full informed consent. Um, and also we'll say if there are ingredients, undeclared ingredients in the vaccine, or doctors or nurses injecting someone without telling them this is a clinical trial, and telling them of the issues, you know, and not giving them prevention and treatment or in the media causing fear. We have multiple um, aspects. So in Ireland, um, when I interact with the people dressed up as police or when I'm an advocate for people uh, with people dressed up as judges, I say to them, I accept your oath of office. Are you acting under it? And none of the, the people dressed up as police or the people dressed up as judges will answer and they won't generally give their name. And so that means that they realize what they're doing is criminal and unlawful. So in the World Freedom Alliance and in the World Doctors Alliance, we're working with lawyers and doctors around the world. But also um, in the United Kingdom, we're working with the veterans, for example, with Mixdot, uh, And we are going to train people in the rule of law and also to train people to act as police constables under the law. And we're setting up processes to ensure that the courts are actually acting under the rule of law. And we're very honored to be working with lawyers for liberty as well in the UK. So I think what we need to do is hold like police constables and judges to account. And if they don't act under the law, um, the judges can actually be reported like in Ireland, it could be to the chief justice um, and they can actually be arrested by individual people, you know, that we cannot have it that the police and the courts are not acting under the law. And these people will be held accountable. Yes. Okay, well, look, I just wanted to um, highlight uh, this section from the document because, uh, you know, you're being absolutely specific about what you're expecting uh, everybody that's in office to do. So it says here, to ensure harm is avoided, complete and comprehensive evidence is required uh, to make publicly available uh, for independent analysis, assessment and validation for the SARS-CoV-2 measures uh, being undertaken and continued, including but not limited to, you're required to provide evidence of preventions and treatments for SARS-CoV-2 symptoms and illness being made available to prevent illness, suffering and to save lives. You're required to provide evidence that SARS-CoV-2 has been isolated and validated by independent groups in ERA or worldwide. You're required to provide evidence that SARS-CoV-2 testing within ERA is specific to SARS-CoV-2. Uh, you're required to provide evidence that there are no undeclared ingredients in the vials used in experimental clinical trials for SARS-CoV-2 within ERA. Uh, and you're required to provide evidence that vials used in the experimental clinical trials for uh, SARS-CoV-2 
COVID-19 mRNA gene therapies, injections slash vaccines used within ERA for SARS-CoV-2 and, and so on. So uh, my point here is um, you are asking for very specific uh, information and really if there was any honesty coming from those people holding in office, uh, holding positions in, in office, uh, they should be able to provide that information very clearly and very concisely. Uh, and then there are questions need to be asked if they're unwilling or unable to do that, because why would they be if if what they're doing is uh, is real? Yeah, that's exactly right. So I suppose each of these people, you know, have accepted these roles, whether it's chief medical officer, whether they're like in Ireland, the head of the National Immunization Advisory Committee that's recommending injecting these mRNA gene therapy to pregnant women. So they have, you know, the role, they are getting paid. And all we're simply asking is if they are saying there is a pandemic, if they're saying there is no treatments available, you know, or, you know they have to give the information as individuals and if they don't, and then why are they declaring a pandemic, you know? Like, we have to give them the opportunity. So in this notice structure, you give them 14 days. We will give them a notice to remedy another 14 days so it's a fair process. And then we will write an affidavit where we will say, you know, in our expert opinion. And if they don't counteract it, then you can actually lodge these documents in the court. And there is an additional court process to then hold them personally accountable. But I think what's more important is that if someone who's pregnant is coerced, we'll say, because they want to travel to get the injection, or, or as is happening, if they want to deliver their baby, they have to get this uh, injection, that if then they get adverse events, they can use this documentation to actually sue these individual people in their private and personal capacity in the years ahead. Yes, okay. I, I just wanted to ask uh, one last thing, Del Dolores, um, in terms of uh, we see a lot of uh, public officials, politicians, uh, total abrogation of the rule of law, normal due process. And all of this is usually predicated under the guise of, well, it's a state of emergency. And, you know, we have to dispense with the normal due processes. So laws don't apply in this case because we're all in this together. Uh, and this is the vaccine rollout is, a, is well under an emergency use authorization in America and then similar in the UK, Europe, and Republic of Ireland, but isn't this state of emergency, isn't this inextricably linked to uh, the vaccine? So, you know, how do you define a state of emergency? Well, if you're in any kind of a lockdown or any kind of restrictive uh, mode, then that constitutes an, a continuation of this, quote, state of emergency. Therefore, the uh, non-licensed experimental pharmaceutical products are then still allowed to be under emergency use authorization. Isn't this like a self-licking ice cream cone that can just go on forever? So that's an excellent question. And I suppose what uh, a lot of people are not aware of is that there is a hierarchy of law. And in the hierarchy of law, we have inalienable freedoms and rights, which are very simple uh, and are higher than anything that's written down. And, are, and inalienable means that can never be taken away. They are there from the moment that you were born and they are with you all their lives. And they include the freedom to have bodily integrity, uh, the freedom to travel, freedom of speech, freedom of assembly. And so uh, they come from men and women and the people. And it is the people then in all of our countries that bring in the system of government into existence. But in the hierarchy of these laws, nothing written down uh, can actually infringe on those inalienable rights. And that's the rule of law. 
And that's why when I interact with the police anywhere in the world, when their oath is that they will actually uphold the law, which is that we have inalienable rights to bodily integrity, to travel, to freedom of speech, assembly, so that all of these so-called acts under the guise uh, of COVID-19 are actually unlawful and criminal. And that's why the judges and the police will not answer, are they actually upholding their oath so they know? And under, this is what these notices are doing, are telling them as individual men and women, if you are lying to your population as a prime minister, that is actually multiple crimes like malfeasance, malfeasance in public office and gross misconduct as a civil service servant. And for the harm that they do in criminal and unlawful behavior, they will be accountable and responsible. And if the courts and the police are doing, like as we know in the UK, all of the fines were thrown out because they were the courts and the police and everyone, the politicians knew that they were breaking the law. But we can't just have politicians and doctors breaking the law. They will be held to account. If the courts don't do it, we will then have to hold the judges to account. And it's actually a very simple process. So all of us need to just grow into our power and authority, learn about the rule of law. And whenever I challenge people or if I help people to get out of hotels, you just say, you can't touch me. I have freedom to leave this hotel. It is unlawful. And you can then sue them. Because, for example, in Ireland, it's lifetime in prison if you do unlawful detention. So just what we then have to look at is the politicians, the judges and the police. And if they are breaking the law, they will be held to account. And I'm very happy to be working with people across the world, the lawyers for liberty and people uh, like Dr. Anne McCluskey and um, Elisa Keane in the north. And we have, you know, hundreds of thousands of people now in Ireland and across the UK working together on this. Uh, Dolores, thank you very much for, for this. Now, just before we go, uh, you will be uh, speaking to David Scott on Thursday. Uh, this will be uh, Thursday evening, so that interview will go out immediately after that. Right. Um, I'm very much looking forward to that. But uh, this uh, is, uh, uh, as we said at the beginning, an initiative which is happening. You're handling the Republic of Ireland side, but uh, there's a Northern Irish side to this as well. So I think you've just mentioned the names, but just tell us who's behind that. Yes, so Elisa Keane, who's an expert uh, in the law, the rule of law and these notices of liability, she signed uh, the one for the north of the island of Ireland. And then we're also Elisa, um, sorry, Dr. Anne McCluskey, who's been very vocal as one of the leading people uh, in Ireland speaking out, also witnessed it and we witnessed each other. And, you know, Michael O'Bernicea and other people across the UK um, and Anne de Bussire and the Lawyers for Liberty we're all exchanging the information on how the whole notice of liability works. And they will, will end up then in uh, courts or grand jury, jury courts or the information that people can sue their doctor's medical insurance or the regulators in their private and personal capacity. So people might think, well, what if the police don't investigate? But actually under this process, you can write to the doctor and say, you know, for example, if someone died, my wife was not given full informed consent or if someone in a care home had dementia, it is absolutely unlawful to enroll people that cannot give full informed consent. And whoever did the injection, and if police don't investigate that as a crime, they will all have to be held to account. But it's not so difficult. You know, it's the loved ones of the people that are harmed can sue the people in their personal and private capacity. But it's not that we want to go, you know, suing people, but we have got, this has got to stop. And the other thing that needs to be done is to actually challenge the media, you know, and the BBC as well. So, you know, that's why I'm such a great fan of the UK column, because if people had the information, 
that not only are the adverse events immediately after the mRNA, but as I and many others have been saying, um, it is there are potential long-term consequences that whatever is in the vials, if those infectious agents come around again in the animal studies, up to all of the people died. So there is a huge fear that we will have significant deaths in the months and years to come as well. Okay, th thank you very much, Dolores. I look very much looking forward to your discussion with David Scott in a few days' time. And of course, we'll let everybody know when that happens. So thank you. Uh, we shall move on now. And uh, But uh, if you're able to stay with us, uh, we might have a couple of questions uh, as we go. But uh, let, what's going on here, Patrick? Uh, epidemiolo epidemiologists say CDC exaggerated outdoor COVID risks. Oh, they didn't just uh, exaggerate it, Mike. They exaggerated by uh, uh, roughly 100-fold. Uh, let's take a look at uh, what's going on here with the Centers for Disease Control. The CDC released a misleading and inaccurate statistic about the rate of outdoor COVID-19 transmission, placing it at a hugely exaggerated 10%. But uh, a study from Ireland, it quotes here, funny enough, uh, analyzed uh, 232,000 odd cases of COVID-19 and only 262 resulted from what they believe is outdoor transmission. That's a transmission rate of just 0.1%. So it was very easy to sort of pick apart this particular uh, report by the CDC. Dr. Joseph Marcola is doing it here. A separate research revealed that even if, this is interesting, even if 10% of the population is infected, it would take an average of 31.5 days of continuous outdoor exposure for a person to inhale enough virus to get infected. And even then, the dose would only cause infections in 63% of those exposed. And I flagged this one because this is particularly interesting. Even though transmission risks outdoors is roughly zero, uh, I paraphrase this quote, by the way, it's not an exact quote. The CDC still advises the quote, unvaccinated, including children and those with natural COVID-19 immunity from prior infection to continue wearing masks outdoors uh, in many cases, no pun intended, yeah, put well, single quotes around that. So this is what the CDC is up to, Mike. And just take a look. This is the director. I mean, this is the sort of stuff she's putting out in the media here. This is Dr. Rochelle Walensky. This is Biden's new director of the CDC. And she says the UK variant is now the dominant COVID-19 strain in the US. I mean, the boulder dash never ends with this whole variant business. So she has no idea whether she's coming or going. Uh, already, her term in is less than six months. It's a total train wreck. Mm -hmm. But uh, to be fair, she's inherited a train wreck, but I think she's not making any effort to get the train back on the tracks. That's the problem here. And meanwhile, Robert Redford, or Redfield, sorry, <laughs> Robert Redfield uh, is parachuting into some other sort of post-career uh, uh, glory. So who knows? So, I mean, I want to ask really quickly, Dolores, a question. Dolores, one thing that we're seeing time and time again is public health uh, officials, ministers, health ministers, people in various countries like the Republic of Ireland, they're constantly defer away if, whenever they're asked by first principles to show what the proof is or to make any of their own independent determination. They're always deferring to the WHO or they're even deferring to the CDC in the United States. How, how big of a problem is this for individual countries in terms of their own sovereignty? 
Yeah, so absolutely, that's unlawful, right? So that's why we're trying to inform people that individual men and women, you know, and the rule of law, and they as individuals have an oath, either as a doctor or as a prime minister or as someone who has a duty. And also, for example, you know, if you have virology labs in the United Kingdom or in Public Health England, they have a requirement to actually do it in their own countries. And whoever are the directors or the CEO or the regulator, they have a duty to check it all out in their own country and under the rule of law there accountable and so what we're doing is providing the information because a lot of these like civil servants or people are used to be in the background and they're deferring to all regulations or you know this is the policy but that actually is not how it works these people are responsible and they will be held to account and I suppose what we want then is for them to actually collectively that's why all of their names are on these notices together that ideally they should come together and go okay People are now aware that they are personally liable. So if they are causing death, it is up to contributory manslaughter, right, which is lifetime in prison. Uh, and there's enough, like we had a million people on the 29th of May around London. Um, there is enough people now that are aware that will actually, you know, dedicate years of their lives. That even if they end the lockdown, we're not going to go away. Point. Very good point. Thank you very much for that. Now, uh, let's uh, just move on to this then, because uh, the uh, this is uh, Spark a Change, which is a sort of uh, volunteering organization. They're looking for people to sign up as vaccination buddies. Um, so let's just have a look at what they're saying about this. We know that some groups of people are more likely to be at risk from COVID-19 and its long-term effects. These are also the people most likely to be worried about having the vaccination. Because medical professions are, professionals are so busy at the moment, we would like to match specially trained volunteers, the vaccination buddies, with these people to help them make informed decisions about whether they should have the vaccination. And if you're thinking about becoming uh, a vaccination buddy, I suggest you probably consider very carefully what uh, Dolores has just said in the last few minutes of this program, because uh, vaccination buddies would be liable for their activities as well, whether it's voluntary or not. Uh, but uh, Patrick- uh, Vaccine handlers probably a better word. Yes. Um, they're not your buddy if they're dragging you by the ear uh, if you don't want to get a vaccine and they're doing it anyway. So Indeed. But uh, Joe Biden, we have to bring him back on screen again because he's also encouraging people. Well, it's the, the vaccine buddy system that you're talking about there in Somerset, uh, America's taken this uh, in, uh, into the corporate realm and really uh, turbocharged it, literally. Uh, listen, Joe Biden's going to tell you exactly all of the things that the government is uh, laying out for you. He's not telling you everything. I'm just uh, picked a few highlights here, but listen to this, including a turbocharged lift to your local vac station. Getting vaccinated has never been easier. We are 80,000 locations where you can get a shot. 90% of you live within five miles of one of those locations. You can now find a vaccine site near you by texting your zip code to 43 8829-438829, your zip code and that number. You'll get all the places near you. Many places don't require an appointment. Just walk in and get the shot. It's free and everyone 12 years and above is eligible. If you need help getting your vaccine site, getting to or from your vaccination site, Lyft and Uber are offering free rides be to take you to the vaccination site and bring you back home between May 24th and July the 4th to anyone who wants to get vaccinated. 
Now it's time to get your shot. We have the vaccine. We've secured enough supply to vaccinate all adults and children above the age of 12. Excellent. We've secured the supply to give you shots for the rest of time in memoriam and, and the rest of the world, too. So uh, he's saving the world. So he really fancies himself as a kind of FDR uh, character. Certainly that's what we're told. All his advisors are telling him that, Joe, your legacy is you're going to be the, the, the next FDR. That's how you're going to be remembered yes. uh, in history. But uh, pretty scary, isn't it? Uh, how much, and they're, not only that, they're, like, they're paying employers for the time off or whatever time off that employee will have to take to get their vaccine. So it's more furlough money or whatever uh, is being made available. I mean, so I, not only that, I'm just going to say they've spent $3 billion, the U.S. federal government, on what? Advertising mm. to combat vaccine hesitancy. That's basically marketing and advertising for the pharmaceutical companies. $3 billion. That was announced in April. Well, that, that's very interesting because the UK budget for this is $1.6 billion, but you have that. that so our, the proportion of money we're spending is higher than even in the United States. So the governments have paid for the research and development. They subsidized the uh, research and development. I'm not sure how much research they did this time around, but they've also subsidized the distribution. Mm -hmm. They're buying bulk, buying the product, okay, giving it out for free, and they're paying billions for advertising. Mm. I mean, this is like the biggest bailout ever for any corporate sector yeah. ever in history. Yeah. I mean, the military doesn't even get it this good. Yeah. And they make bombs. So, I mean, it's, it's absolutely incredible. Yes, indeed. Okay, let's move on. Uh, if you like what the UK Column does and you would like to support us, then please head over to ukcolumn.org forward slash community and there are options to help us out there. Uh, and also do share uh, our material on the various platforms. Now, it's only a week to go or so until the G7. And uh, well, here's the nice G7 UK website. You can find that at uh, g7uk.org. Um, and uh, well- Are they doing Build Back Better as well? Of course they are. They're doing Build Back Better. That is absolutely the, oh, the key. Wow. Um, so um, of course there is the question of security because there's gonna be all kinds of demonstrations and protests at this. Uh, and uh, well, uh, the- um, the Chief Constable of uh, Devon and Cornwall Police was speaking to the BBC this morning, uh, and he was asked about the preparations for the, uh, for the protests. So let's just briefly have a listen to this. I'm expecting and intending and hoping that there's peaceful protests, and, and we are very, very willing to accept and encourage and facilitate peaceful protests, Martha. And I think that's an important part of British democracy. We have over 5,000 mutual aid officers from across all forces, England and Wales, and indeed from Police Scotland assisting us, a totality of six and a half thousand officers deployed, hopefully to ensure that nothing happens other than the business that G7 needs to do, and the people of Devon, Cornwall, the Isles of Scilly, and all our visitors go about their lawful business and enjoy the sun. So there's a very important point there. Uh, first of all, if you listen to his narrative, He's talking about making sure that the G7 can get on with their business without any interruption, making sure that the local communities can get on with their business without any interruption. Well, of course, this is the main theme of the Police Crime Sentencing and Courts Bill, one of the three bills that are so chilling uh, for anybody that's unhappy with what's going on at the present time. 
Uh, this particular bill focuses, uh, amongst other things, but uh, one of its key areas is the right to protest and the right to free freely assemble. Uh, and it is going to have a chilling effect on that. So as you uh, will probably know, we had uh, Joe Boyd on the program on Wednesday, and we also mentioned uh, his book, The Road to Kill the Bill, uh, on last Friday's uh, news program. So um, that is now available on New Caxton uh, Publications, on the New Caxton Publications website. It's $9.99. I strongly recommend that anybody that's involved in the uh, protest movement over lockdown and, and so on, uh, reads this book because it really reinforces the point that it's much better to operate in small groups rather than getting involved in large hierarchical structures. And it explains very clearly his experience of operating uh, amongst, uh, not directly with, but amongst large hierarchical structures and how those large hierarchical structures were effectively co-opted by the police and the intelligence services. So this is a very important uh, book if you want to, if you're involved in protest in this country to understand what's going on around you and it doesn't cost very much. I absolutely recommend that everybody reads it. Um, but in the meantime, of course, one of the things that Joe is well known for is the fact that he brought a case against uh, fracking companies with respect to protest. Fracking companies were uh, attempting to, this was Ineos in particular, attempting to uh, force people to protest inside a protest pen and therefore not get in the way of the trucks and the various things that were taking material to the fracking sites. Um, well, uh, everybody will be glad to know that the G7 protest uh, zone, the protest zone, the protest pen has been moved from Plymouth Hoe to Central Park because Plymouth Hoe is now, it's decided is no longer a suitable location. For it's too public and pen. visible. Uh, well, it's too visible. But yeah. just to ask everybody to think about the complete irrationality of what's going on here. Uh, people are expected to protest in Central Park in Plymouth. Let's just put this in perspective, uh, because here's a map. Plymouth on the right-hand side there, and Central Park uh, in the middle of that uh, uh, city blob. And well, here is uh, Carbis Bay, where the G7 is taking place. This is two hours in the car, and two, nearly three hours on the train to get from Plymouth to Carbis Bay. So this isn't the case of a, a protest pen that's off the side of the road, like at the frack site, uh, which isn't getting in the way of the trucks. This is actually, they now have decided that the safest distance for protesters with respect to G7 is effectively 150 miles away, Patrick. It is absolutely incredible. But as you said, what are the main uh, features of this G7? Well, the first one is health, uh, and the second one is climate. Uh, and so with that in mind, everybody will be glad to know that, uh, that today the Carbis Bay, the G7 Carbis Bay Progress Report has been released. And this is all about uh, advancing universal health coverage and global health through strengthening health systems, preparedness and resilience. And this is what they say about it. Uh, since 2015, G7 members have helped expand access to vaccines, supported developing countries to train, recruit and retain health workers and assisted more than 70 countries to stop infectious disease outbreaks from spreading. And of course, we've got to remember that uh, the UK has bought how many? 300, somewhere between three and 500 million doses of vaccine. The United States is doing something similar. We also know that because the AstraZeneca uh, vaccine, we just heard it from Joe's mouth, because the AstraZeneca vaccine is not approved, even under an emergency approval in the United States, 
they're just going to ship those off to the third world where it doesn't matter whether the, there's approval or not. Or, or Mexico. Or, well, possibly Mexico. Yeah. But uh, you're absolutely right to say, Patrick, that uh, the G7 uh, is having this issue of global health and vaccination in particular as one of really two major uh, policy themes. And co combating vaccine hesitancy. And these are all the sort of the, con the, the conversations that are going to dominate uh, the G7. So public health, again, uh, we, we commented on this uh, previously. It's become like a religion. This, it's a new sort of secular religion, and it's totally globalized uh, as well. This is not just confined to any one particular country. So this is one of the big, long hangovers of the last uh, 15 months, let's say, uh, from COVID-19 and this crisis that is just going to be with us for a long time, unfortunately. So people are really going to have to mount some opposition. And I'm not saying mounting opposition uh, in, in any specific way, but really kind of asking for a little more uh, accountability with regards to the quote, the science. And this is something that seems to be absolutely impossible. The further we go, the more sort of bogus science that's being uh, posited by government health ministers and they keep moving the goalpost. Anthony Fauci is a perfect example of that, a classic flip-flopper. He's still flip-flopping today. Yeah, yes, indeed. Now, uh, the question of where this uh, virus originated uh, is certainly gathering uh, momentum and the blame being put on the uh, a leak from the Wuhan lab. And the latest thing is that, uh, that several, well, quite a number of uh, Fauci's emails have been uh, leaked. Uh, and, uh, well, some of them at least seem to be suggesting that uh, there's some basis to this Wuhan narrative. Sure. You know, we'll get to that in a second. But Fauci's emails are all the rage. This is what's dominating at least the U.S. media right now. And uh, Freedom of Information request was actually lodged uh, with some of these uh, were able to be released into the public ah. here. And so I'm just going to flag a couple uh, of items here that I thought were interesting. This was extremely interesting. Now, turn the clock back to the beginning of all this, okay? Right before the hysteria was ramping up. You remember in February where we, we you know, people were- February 2020. 2020, yes. we're talking about quarantines, but this idea of lockdown hadn't really hit fever pitch yet. So this is from about March the 2nd here. Anthony Fauci shockingly obtuse emails to Michael Gerson, who's a journalist for the New York Times. This is written by Jeffrey Tucker here uh, for Real Clear Markets. And take a look at this. We'll look at what was said here. And Gerson, you have to remember, uh, he asked Fauci before he published the article, uh, this is back before lockdown, is the overall strategy of social distancing just to keep the percentage of Americans who get the disease low until a vaccine is available? This seems to be much harder to do in a free society. Does this mean closing schools, public transport? Do states and localities make such decisions? Asks this New York Times journalist, to Fauci by email before he published. So he's basically allowing Fauci to kind of be the editor of this particular mm. piece here. And so it goes on here, and this is Fauci. Uh, social distancing is not really geared uh, to wait for a vaccine, wrote Fauci. The major point is to prevent easy spread of infections in schools, uh, crowded events such as theaters, uh, stadiums, canceling events and workplaces, do teleworking, uh, where possible. Close proximity of people will keep the R naught higher uh, than one and even as high as two to three. If we can get 
the R naught to less than one, the epidemic will gradually decline and stop on its own without a vaccine. Okay, that's just a taste mm. of what's in these emails. So this was pre-hysteria, basically. And the big takeaway from this, Mike, is that he allowed Fauci to write his column for him. There's no mention of flattening the curve, i.e. saving the health system, the hospitals, mm. And, and that was the whole basis for the lockdown. Only a couple of weeks later, that became the sort of scientific consensus. So isn't this incredible? Well, well, one of the things that's incredible about it is that it seems to be a similar progression as to what happened in the United Kingdom. And yet we have Dominic Cummings going into the House of Commons uh, Select Committee and saying, well, there was a whole big argument about this between me and others. And, and, and yet the same progression seems to happen in the United States where they having the same arguments where they, you know, how did this happen? There seems to be a common narrative built here. And of course, we've got to ask the question, uh, speaking about the G7 just a second ago, the rapid response mechanism is all about a common narrative in various parts of the, amongst all the G7 countries and presenting that common narrative in the media. So is, is this, is what's been going on here, is this real or is this actually an expression of that common narrative? Um, it's it's hard to say, Mike, because uh, you know the the hysteria and the kind of whoever's dictating the agenda in government, and they're talking to other governments, as you said, to make sure that they're all on the same page. And then you have the injection of the Neil Ferguson report mm. not long after that. So, but one has to look at the uh, the science. They're they're always saying this is the science. Fauci mm. said, no, you don't need to wear masks. Then he says you need to wear masks, and everyone parrots that and says, well, the experts said. Anthony Fauci said, you need to wear masks. Mm. But wait a minute, he just said a week before that that you didn't. And he just said that uh, you don't need to do all these things uh, to wait for a vaccine. So, and now it's all about the vaccine, mm. you see. So the science is like on a relative continuum for these people in government. They're just literally making it up uh, as they go along. And then the infection rates that uh, they used to calculate the R number, all of this is conjecture. And it, uh, a lot of the data they're using for that is based on PCR testing. Mm. So again, it's null and void. So the science is completely bogus almost every way you look at this from day one. And yet we have all these policies that have been built on top of this. And mm. we're stuck with a lot of these things still today. Um, which then brings us uh, to the Wuhan lab leak theory. Well, this is the, one of the big takeaways here from Fauci's emails and everybody's making a meal out of this one, including Tucker Carlson and many others, because let's face it, everybody wants to take Fauci down, and this has provided the opportune uh, moment to do so. So I, I, I picked two emails in particular that are driving the kind of Wuhan lab leak theory. And I say theory because it is still very much a theory, although some people are saying now that it's all but certain uh, because of the existence of a couple of emails. Let's take a look at uh, one of those here. This one was from uh, Adam uh, Gertner, here, and he's really talking about, uh, he's emailed to Anthony Fauci here. We don't know if this was a solicited email or if it was done through public, uh, a public portal mm. or what. So you don't know what the relationship here is. And he's basically saying, talking about the, uh, the HIV uh, gene components uh, in the genome of this. I assume he's referencing the Chinese uh, full genomic sequence that the Chinese put up, which I'll show you in a minute. Mm. Um, but so because of this, people are saying, ah, this is evidence that um, it, the gain of function research that uh, the NIH was funding 
um, is definitely, you know, Fauci knew about it and mm. so forth. So there's a lot of these conversations going on at the time. We were having these conversations as well. Yes. And I'll tell you why it kind of hit the rocks for us here. But here's another one. This is being bandied about quite a lot. Christian Anderson here basically saying the same thing. He's, he's saying this is a possibility. Definitely it's in the conversation. Now, we're not trying to exonerate Anthony Fauci for anything here, but what we're saying is uh, none of this constitutes evidence of uh, a, a, a killer virus escaping out of the BSL-4 uh, virology lab in Wuhan, China. Although it's a really compelling story, there's still yet no evidence mm. that it did that. It jumped out of the lab, jumped from a bat to a civet into the lab and then into the population and then did a world tour to 128 countries in eight weeks, okay? There's no evidence to, to say that that's even remotely possible based mm -hmm. on what we're looking at, but yet everybody's already running with this yes. because it's just a, a, a delicious narrative and it takes Fauci down and it also takes the Chinese down. It can blame China. Mm -hmm. Trump is already asking for, I don't know, what, 100 million compensation or mm -hmm. trillion or 10 trillion, I don't know what he, he, he tweeted or said the other day, he wants trillions of dollars of compensation for wrecking the global economy. I have to just remind people, Mike. It was our governments that, that <laughs> it wasn't the Chinese. It wasn't the Chinese. So yes. they're, they're, you can blame China for some things, maybe for, uh, for maybe publishing not so good science, but our, our journals still published those papers out of China, even though uh, they, they weren't really comprehensive from a scientific point of view. And we all riffed off of everything that China put out and based all our policies on that. So we're really to blame, not China, right. if you want to look at it that way. But let's look at, uh, in his defense here, this is what Christian Anderson says, uh, the author of that second email I just showed you. Um, As I have said many times, we seriously considered a lab leak possibility. Uh, however, significant new data, extensive analysis, and many discussions led to the conclusions in our paper. Um, what the email shows is a clear uh, example of the scientific process. So that's what he's saying here. So again, we, we just have to just reiterate, Mike, if it was a killer super jazzed up virus uh, that escaped out of the lab and caused a global pandemic, it's probably going to go down history as the worst, weakest bioweapon uh, because it didn't even manage to target the majority of the population only people that were older than the average life expectancy. Yes. And and why did they need to basically uh, invent the PCR data? Why do you need fraudulent PCR data, fraudulent death certificates, uh, changing the rules in terms of labeling COVID deaths, all of these things that, that compiled all of these statistics of cases and deaths. Why would you need all that if you had a super duper killer virus that was doing the rounds? Really, it just the, arc, the logic behind the Wuhan lab leak theory, although it's sensational, the story, the logic just doesn't, doesn't add up. Yeah. But don't tell that to anybody at Fox News because they will not have worked that out yet. Well, it's not just Fox News as many more. So the question is, how did this uh, Wuhan lab theory, how did this start? How did this all start? Well, it kind of right from the get go, it was out there, Mike. Uh, but let's just go back. Let's turn back the clock to early 2020 and let's just go to China. And so who was commenting on this possibility at the time? Uh, well, it wasn't uh, immediately in early 2020, but it wasn't too many months in 2020 before. So Richard Dearlove pops his head above the parapet and says, uh, I said, I do not think that this pandemic started as an accident. It raises the issue. Uh, if China were ever to admit responsibility, does it pay reparations? So he's very much 
uh, feeding Donald Trump's lines, it seems. Uh, but anyway, uh, of course, the former head of MI6, uh, he went on to say, I think it will make every country in the world rethink how it treats its relationship with China. Um, so that was his position last year. His, he has popped up again in the last day or so uh, because it's the Telegraph. Uh, because, of course, since he made those statements in the last couple of weeks, we've had intelligence reports from the U.S. intelligence services, also from MI6, supporting this lab leak story. And my question, Patrick, is how short memories do people have if they're going to accept the word of the intelligence services without seeing the evidence? Because the intelligence services provided us with the excuse to go to war in Iraq. The intelligence services provided us with the evidence, in inverted commas, for the Salisbury, uh, um, the Salisbury attack. Uh, yeah, um, Novichok. Novichok attack, yes. I've already forgot about it. Yes, indeed. <laughs> so, so the intelligence services are have a history. And uh, the Duma chemical uh, Duma weapons. Chemical weapon. They've got a history of giving us fake information. But nonetheless, just sorry, I just, I'll just uh, run through this quickly. Uh, he was giving uh, some commentary on uh, a podcast for The Telegraph, uh, and this is what he had to say. The People's Republic of China is a pretty terrifying regime and does some things we consider unacceptable and extreme in silencing opposition to the official line of the government. And I'm thinking, Patrick, what an absolute hypocrite when we are sitting uh, on the cusp of the most egregious censorship regime being led by the United Kingdom and its intelligence services. Uh, and for him to accuse China of doing exactly what we're doing, whether China's doing it or not, I, that's an, another question. The issue is that Richard Dearlove stands up and accuses them of this while we're doing something just as bad. Uh, and he went on to say, uh, we don't know uh, that's what's happened, but a lot of data has probably been destroyed or made to disappear. So it's going to be difficult to prove definitively uh, or definitely the case for a gain of function chimera being the cause of the pandemic. So, so here he's saying you can't, we can't prove it, but you can't disprove me now because China, the bad guys have destroyed the evidence. Yes. I mean, it's a foolproof sort of argument, isn't it? It, it is, absolutely. And uh, he said, uh, this is why scientific analysis is now so important, because although that can't uh, prove the case 100%, the thorough biochemical analysis puts the weight of evidence to this being a man-made lab experiment, a natural virus that has been enhanced. Uh, and he uh, finished off by saying China was originally let off the hook. I think the problem was the style of the Trump regime. A lot of people understandably found it hard to go along with his more outlandish allegations. Well, hold on a second. Was it an outlandish allegation or was it not an outlandish allegation? Because now you're trying to say that it's something that actually happened. But nonetheless, the justification here is that uh, nobody investigated properly at the style at the time because they were afraid of being associated with uh, Trump's comments. Is he saying that the British intelligence had Trump derangement syndrome? <laughs> Seems to be. And they, and they just went off the whole thing? I mean, come on, it's ridiculous. There is no, still to date, nobody can show any scientific evidence that, uh, uh, A, they, they it's contentious about jumping from animals to humans, okay? And this is what the world of virology does, okay? Second thing, uh, whether it's got gain of function or whatever, wh where is the scientific evidence that any gain of function coronavirus has made anybody sick or given them at least a cough? That's still missing in all of this. So it's a hell of a jack in the beanstalk. 
story, really, when you drill down to it, if you really want to get down to the science. Well, let's. Well, well just before you do, just uh, just let me briefly ask Dolores. I'm interested in your views here, Dolores. You're you're quite welcome to disagree with mm -hmm. what has just been presented, if if you see fit. But I'm interested to, to hear what you might think about uh, about this Wuhan lab leak theory. Well, I think when you looked at it, there was a 12 nucleotide insert. Uh, there was a Nature paper around April, May uh, 2020. And um, if that is true, that could not have happened. And the Nature paper said there's nothing to see here. But from the figures and from the results, there was this 12 nucleotides. And the reason why that was necessary is that the coronavirus was patented, this one. And so if they wanted to do any kind of testing, or any kind of uh, injection or vaccination. Uh, there was a Supreme Court ruling in the United States about a decade ago that said that anything that was not altered could not be patented, and then the testing would not be patented at all, and that anyone could come out. So we do see that there are patenting around this variant and um, gain a function of this coronavirus. But just to go back to what Patrick said is, the beauty of vitamin D and hydroxychloroquine and zinc and ivermectin is that they boost the immune system. So the common cold is the coronavirus. You know, if the SARS from 20 years ago, there was 20% uh, different, that when these coronaviruses mutate, your natural immune system and things like vitamin D and hydroxychloroquine will mean that no one need get sick. And in January 2020, Michael Levitt, the Nobel Prize winner, was saying that the deaths from the Diamond Princess, which was essentially a model, uh, were just the average death. And if they had been given prevention and treatment, no one need die. So really, there's not a case of compensation because of a pandemic at all, because this is an engineered pandemic, and it's about the eighth in 20 years. And that's why someone like me, when you study how they have events before it, exactly how they patented and exactly the media you know, how they play the game and they silence uh, people that are saying there is no pandemic and they do this whole undermining of, like in this case, autopsies, testing, you know, 70% of the tests in February 2020, the CDC came out and said they were contaminated with uh, SARS-CoV-2 to be false positives. And they were the numbers that were given then to the WHO to declare a pandemic. And maybe just one last thing. Um, about 3,000 people die every day in the world from TB. And the World Health Organization declared this a pandemic with 4,200 people dying over a period of four months. It makes no sense. If you put prevention and treatment together, two people, no one need die. So, you know, everyone in the UK, the prime minister has the responsibility to just call it out saying there is no pandemic. We don't need to lock down the world. Okay. And the last thing is the, the, the Wuhan lab leak, it also gives a lot of credence to the, the myth of the asymptomatic super spreader. And the whole sort of pandemic, the virtual pandemic, I think Dolores was referring to that you can create a pandemic mm -hmm. without actually having a pandemic. Uh, and it can be done virtually through testing, through a test-based strategy of diagnosis rather than, a, for instance, a symptoms-based uh, evaluation, things like this, real simple fundamental things is what's happened. So let's just remind ourselves, and again, I think Dolores referred to this as well. Uh, this is one point here. This was from Nature Magazine, February 2020, uh, a new coronavirus associated with human respiratory 
disease in China. This is one of the papers that kicked it all off. And she was talking about the unremarkable numbers to declare a global pandemic. Well, look right here. As of the 25th of January, at least 1,975, quote, cases, quote, cases have been reported since the first patient was hospitalized on the 12th of December in 2019. So how could you call right after this or at this time they're preparing for a global pandemic based on these numbers? Did they have some sort of a crystal ball that they knew that this incredible coronavirus was just going to do its thing uh, internationally here and just going on again, a novel coronavirus from patients. You can look at these papers here. This is in New England Journal of Medicine. Uh, patients with pneumonia in China in 2019. That's how it started. It was pneumonia patients. COVID-19 was not created as a disease. It wasn't named until later in 2020. And it represents a basket of symptoms that overlap with other things, other, uh, other illnesses as well. So and the problem with this study here is that any other possible non-viral causes were not taken into account on this. So this doesn't really, this paper out of China doesn't really rise to scientific standards, yet it was laundered right through the West uh, with no questions asked. It's almost like they just look, were looking for the, the right signals to be made out of China and they were just going to run with it. So basically, well, it must be SARS-CoV-2 then, all of these different cases and patients in here. And it really started from a very meager amount of uh, people and patients and cases here. And just to reiterate that, there's the, uh, the, the genome here that China published, and that's what everyone is referencing. Mm. Um, so this is up on the gene bank uh, as well, publicly, the schematic here, the uh, phylogenetic analysis of SARS-CoV-2, uh, COVID-19, as it were. And again, this is really important. This is January 2020. This paper, detection of the 2019 novel coronavirus by real-time RT-PCR, and I want to just highlight this gentleman, Christian Drosten. Uh -huh. He's one of the authors of this. Now, this is a really important paper, Mike, because this is the whole basis of the total diagnostic regime, the testing regime that we were subject to. And so was it peer-reviewed? What do you think? No. It managed to somehow get by the peer review process. How was that even possible here? And let's just take a look at this. And in terms of PCR tests, look at right there, there's the primers and the probes for the RT-PCR tests there. So they're not getting a copy or matching a like-for-like -like copy of the virus in any samples. That's how the PCR test works. You can do your own research and you can go look at this paper and also review the uh, work of Kerry Mullis, the inventor of the technology, not peer-reviewed, unfortunately. And then here he is again, and he popped up, Mike, in 2009. What is this? German virologist race for a swine flu test. There is Christian Drosten once again. So he is really the man of the moment whenever there's a pandemic raging. Uh, and so, and this is a paper here from the Institute for Pure and Applied Knowledge. Uh, this was published in Science, Public Health Policy and Law uh, in October 2020, COVID-19 data collection, comorbidity and federal law, a historic perspective here. The CDC published guidelines on March 24th, 2020, that substantially altered how the cause of death is recorded exclusively for COVID-19. That's kind of important. Yes. Because there are your deaths, basically, in terms of statistics. That's how you create huge death numbers. And the paper also flagged this important point. When they moved from a test 
to, to a test-based strategy from previously normal procedures, a symptoms-based strategy. So when you go to PCR testing for a diagnosis, what do you get? Cases, lots of cases, millions of cases. Do you get a lot of deaths? Yes, you get a lot of deaths if you PCR testing people uh, and then 28 days after and they die. But the key point is, you don't get very many more deaths than normal if you get any more deaths more than normal. More COVID deaths. This is simply deaths attributed to rather yeah. than deaths of. Yeah, with COVID, dying with COVID, and, and even dying, quote, from COVID. Th this is also sketchy, mm -hmm. how they attributed the cause of death. So they rewrote what this, this is a good paper. I hope people can go read it. It's very well documented. They basically rewrote the rules for declaring uh, a, a death from any mm -hmm. particular illness, especially COVID-19, but in, and also in terms of how they're going to diagnose and uh, come up with their epidemiological data. Mm. It, they, they rewrote the book. It didn't go through proper uh, legal procedures in the United States in terms of data gathering. You can't just change it on the fly. This is what happened in the United States. So again, this is the virtual pandemic, okay? So you don't need, the only gain of function in this is basically Anthony Fauci and Bill Gates's stock portfolios. That's the only function that was gained in this particular situation. Yes. So. Okay, well, brilliant. Thank you. Now we're just going to end on a slightly different topic uh, because, of course, the other piece of legislation which is uh, going through at the moment is the online safety bill. Uh, and this is going to have a chilling effect on freedom of speech on the internet in the UK. Um, and this, of course, is going to be the template which will be used by the EU and the United States, I have no doubt, in the not too distant future. Uh, so censorship is a significant issue. And it doesn't just apply to being removed from the uh, platforms like Facebook, Twitter, and so on, but also from the payment platform. So I uh, just want to highlight this story. Uh, PayPal shuts down longtime tour supporter with no recourse. This is from the uh, Electronic Freedom Foundation. And they're saying that Larry Brandt, a longtime supporter of Internet Freedom, uh, used his nearly 20-year-old PayPal account to put his money where his mouth is. Uh, his primary use of the payment system was to fund servers to run tour nodes, uh, rooting internet traffic in order to safeguard privacy and avoid country-level censorship. So the point here is he wasn't receiving any money into his PayPal account for providing a service. He was using the PayPal account to pay for services that he was receiving in other countries. Um, so this is the message that he got from PayPal. We're, un we're unable to continue offering our services. Thank you for using PayPal as your payment partner. Unfortunately, we are unable to continue offering our services to you at this time due to the nature of your business and or activity uh, in your account and uh, the risk it poses to PayPal. This decision can't be overturned. And this is very much a point that is being made by the EFF here, uh, is that he tried to make contact with PayPal and they would not speak to him. They wouldn't answer emails and so on. Uh, the EFF reached out to PayPal for clarification uh, and uh, they basically PayPal denied that the shutdown was related to concerns about Tor. Uh, well, what other, since that was the only thing it was being used for, then what was the reason? But they wouldn't uh, explain that. Uh, they said that the situation has been determined appropriately uh, and they refused to offer any further explanation. And after several weeks, they're still refusing to reinstate the account. So uh, this, I think, is uh, extremely dangerous uh, direction to be heading in. Of course, PayPal, under... Uh, a lot of criticism over the years for their uh, practices. And in fact, in this case, uh, any money that was in his PayPal account has been frozen for 180 days. 
so he, he isn't even able to remove uh, the money that is currently sitting in that account. Um, this is uh, very dangerous, very dangerous for a lot of people that are doing a lot of things because if, if platforms are removing the ability to uh, take payments, uh, then that is also going to have a chilling effect on freedom of speech. Just running a few tour servers, right? I right. Mean, that's what he's doing. He wasn't soliciting. He was using it to pay his suppliers, right? That's correct, yes. Yeah, incredible. Yes. So Absolutely incredible. Not a high-profile person in terms of big public recognition. So Indeed, and and not huge amounts of money going through the account either because, you know, he's paying 50 quid a, a server or whatever per month. So, so, you know, it wasn't huge amounts of money either. So anyway, we must leave it there today. Uh, I'm going to say thank you very much to Dolores Cahill for joining us today. Uh, she will be speaking to David Scott uh, on Thursday, and we will let you know as soon as that uh, interview is, is out. Uh, thank you for joining us today, Patrick, as usual. And uh, thank you, our audience, for joining us. Uh, we'll be back at the same time, 1 p.m. as usual on Monday. Uh, have a great weekend, and we hope to see you then. Bye-bye.